0: accuracy the history of a period of time several centuries beyond his own time isaiah demonstrates uh, as though he were there watching an ability to describe what happened during the era of the lord jesus christ and i am impressed that if we find isaiah to be so completely accurate he pay attention of the end of time far distant perhaps to our own future. You know, one is no more unreasonable than the other. It is amazing to me that there were many who had developed a figurative view of prophecy. They had become so self-centered and centered on the nation of Israel that they had come to believe that all of the things the Old Testament said about God's Messiah were spoken about Israel herself. They took the very beautiful passages in Isaiah's uh, prophecy about the Lord Jesus as He suffered and as He served and as He was raised from the dead. And they said about these, now this does not refer to a man but to the history of Israel. And now today, even though the prophecy of Isaiah and of other prophets details too much to be coincidence, the life and history of Jesus, there are those within the Christian faith who say, well, now isn't it a beautiful and wondrous coincidence that all of these things in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus, but now... And then they go right on, they talk about the end of time, and they say, now, all of this is figurative. None of this will come to pass. And you know, the skeptic's answer to faith is more unreasonable than faith itself. We are told by people with no commitment to the authority of God's Word that we ought to put our faith in their ability to reason things out and we ought to trust them more than we trust the Bible. I'm not prepared to do that. I am prepared to believe that if Isaiah could tell us where Jesus was going to come from, where he would live as a child, how he would die, and that he would be resurrected from the dead and set up a kingdom, then I am prepared to believe that Isaiah could tell us what is going to happen in our own future. And so tonight, we deal with the realm basically of what is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to take final control. Chapter 10 of Isaiah tells of the distress during the period that we have come to call the Great Tribulation. In chapter 10 is detailed the awful suffering and some of the events that will come to pass during that time. And now in chapter 11, Isaiah is talking about the deliverance that God will send after that awful period of time when the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord Jesus, comes to take control. I've chosen to title this The Spirit of Christ for the dominant and beautiful description of the Holy Spirit of God as it rests on Jesus, we find in verse 2. Before we begin, Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, I just want to read one verse, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Our emphasis tonight will be on the wondrous Lord whom Isaiah has called in chapter 9, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice first of all in verse 1, talking about Jesus Christ again tonight, I have said that here we find His chronology or His history. He describes the Messiah as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In the book of Psalms, the house and influence of a man is described as a tree that is planted by the waters. The house of David had been described by the prophets as a flourishing tree in a barren land. But in the year A.D. 587, the house of Jesse would be completely cut off. Now here is an item of prophecy that very often uh, some so-called Christian scholars overlook. Isaiah wrote, a 160 years before the, the uh, kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Judah where the house of David ruled, was overthrown. And a 106 years prior to that, Isaiah looks past the fall of Judah down to another time and he says out of the stump of Jesse, the house of Jesse, the house of David, as it were, will come a shoot or a righteous branch... A branch from his roots, he says, will bear fruit. It looked as though God had been mocked and his promises were no good when the New Testament era came on the scene. For all through the Old Testament, after the kingdom was established, God had repeatedly promised down through the time of David through the time of Solomon, even Rehoboam, the corrupt son of Solomon, and on down through the lineage of other kings, that the house of David would never lack an ancestor and that one day God would establish the throne of David in an everlasting way with one descendant of David's who would reign over that kingdom for all time to come. And just at the time it looked as though God was mocked, when it looked as though God's promises were no good, Isaiah says at that time, the stump of Jesse will be the source of a fruit-bearing branch which will not only recover, but will surpass the lost glory of the house of David. The word branch is the word Nazar. It comes from the same Hebrew noun as the word Nazareth. And many conservative scholars see this as a foreshadowing that this particular word was chosen as a foreshadowing of the childhood home of the Lord Jesus. In a, in, indeed, in other places, in the prophets and even in Isaiah, we read that he shall be called, some places it is translated, a Nazarite. Some places it is translated a Nazarene. Both of them from the same root word as this word for the branch. Here is his chronology. This Christ whom Israel awaited, whom we have realized and see now by the eyes of faith. He was to be a righteous, fruit-bearing branch, springing From what seemed to be dead, the stump that was left of the house of Jesse. And then notice in verses 2 and 3, here is his character. His character. The Lord Jesus was man as God intended man to be in the beginning. Jesus is extraordinary but not in the mind of God. When God created Adam and Eve, when He put the man and the woman on the earth, He had created the ideal atmosphere, the ideal environment for them. Everything was designed to serve them and all of them were designed to be what Jesus in fact was. Jesus was man as God intended man to be. And so this righteous branch from the stump of Jesse as Isaiah prophesies it reveals the possibility of humanity through the Holy Spirit of God this one as Isaiah describes him surely must uh, we must agree that Isaiah believes him to be one with God there is no description of any man in the Old Testament that parallels this description the scriptures praise Moses as a man of great courage and strength. Joshua is a great leader and organizer of men. The scriptures praise David as a man after God's own heart, and Solomon is a man wh- who had wisdom such as no man before him had ever had. But there is no description of a man in the Old Testament that is anything like this. It is plain that Isaiah considered him to be one with God. And John, the beloved apostle, as he begins the most eloquent paragraph in the Scripture, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In John 10, chapter 30, out of his, verse 30, out of his own mouth, The Lord Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Isaiah bears him witness that he is so much like the Father that you cannot tell the difference. But it is plain that Isaiah says he is all that he is because of the presence of the Spirit of God in his life. In John 5, verse 30, the Lord Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in verse 2, Isaiah talks about the spirit that shall rest on him. All that he is, he is because of the spirit. Now it is interesting that it is called the Spirit of God and then it is called these other things and all of these are seven characteristics such as in Revelation 4 verse 5 where it says, "...and from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God." And in Revelation 5, verse 6, He saw a lamb standing as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In Scripture, the number seven is the number of perfection. And it is rare, if, rarely, if ever, in the Scripture that the number seven occurs by accident. God protects the number of seven. And the number seven always is the number of divine perfection. And the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God that rested on Him is described in a sevenfold way. Notice, first of all, it is called the Spirit of God. That is the Spirit of love. And then next, it is called the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. That Those are the second and third characteristics. Wisdom is the ability to think clearly, to comprehend, to discern, to have insight, and to understand clearly. And understanding is the ability to put that into practice. The spirit of wisdom and understanding... And then it is called, fourth and fifth, the spirit of counsel and of might or strength. That is, he has both the ability to make meaningful plans and the ability to carry them out. He is our guide because of this. He is characterized by prudence. He is characterized by power. The word might in the Greek Old Testament is the word dunamis. It is carried into our language by the words dynamo, dynamic, and dynamite. He is characterized by power, and it is the strongest word in the Greek for power and strength and might. And then that spirit that rests on him is characterized by knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It is the spirit of reverence. Surely, as we talked about fear this morning, godly fear, Jesus does not fear God the Father and never did in the sense of fright, in the sense of being timid or afraid the way we think of it. Rather, it is the spirit of reverence. It is the knowledge of God that leads us to understand that God does not bend the truth for any man that God was so concerned that things be done rightly, that the nature of His universe is so structured that rather than bend or break the requirements of justice, He spilled the blood of His own Son to pay for our sins. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, it is a knowledge of and a determination to do the will of God. Here is the Spirit of Christ truly, the sevenfold Spirit that rests in Him, that is to be reflected in the lives of His people. And then notice in verses 3 and 4, He will delight in this reverence for this fear of the Lord. And He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor will he make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He is one who delights in the Lord, and because of that he is fair and impartial in all of his judgments. For he is like the Father in that respect. He is completely like God, just, fair in all his dealings. And notice, by the way, this chapter agrees completely with Revelation chapters 19 and 20 as to the sequence of future events. That's a little too much to be coincidence. And here is a reference to the unbridled power that shall be his when he comes again. For it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The rod of his mouth is the word of God. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Indeed, as we read Revelation chapters 19 and 20 and we see that final conflict when the forces of evil rise one more time to try to fight the Lamb of God, we are told that the sword of His mouth, the Word of God in the breath of His mouth will slay all of His enemies and the blood will run six feet deep and 200 miles long. Surely the power of God's Word even today smites the heart of men with more power than any other force on earth. You know, sometimes we wring our hands and we wonder and we agonize over the the needs of somebody that's out of fellowship with God or somebody that's lost. And we think that we've got to come up with an answer to every question they have. We think that we've got to come up with some logical presentation to talk them into doing what they ought to do. You start talking about the Bible with some people and they say, I don't believe it. Well, friends, I want to tell you a secret. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not. It's still the most powerful force on earth. They don't have to believe it. You just go right on quoting it, telling them what it says, and the Spirit of God will take it like a two-edged sword and lay them wide open. For it is the power of God, His Word, and when He comes again, the mere breath of His mouth will be enough to accomplish anything that He wants to have done. Here is His character. And notice in verse 5, It talks about righteousness further. His righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Here is a rigid and rigorous kind of righteousness. Jesus decried what he called the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now bear in mind that to us, though the word Pharisee may seem to be a dirty word, they were an honored people in their own day. And they had standards of righteousness that no member of this church would be willing to live with. But Jesus said, all of your righteousness is on the outside and on the inside. You're dark and dead and full of filth. Righteousness that stops with the exterior is not enough. Righteousness that keeps the rules and prides itself in measurable accomplishments is not enough. It is calling for a rigorous righteousness, which is an absolute conformity of action and intent. Intent. Intents of the heart, the inside of our lives to God's standards of living and thought. A rigorous righteousness surely characterized the Lord Jesus The Lord Jesus never even stopped to consider whether he should compromise his standard. Jesus was encountered by men who could have helped his ministry in a human sense. But Jesus wanted to know one thing about a man and that was not about his ability. That was not about his financial status. Jesus wanted to know about his heart. And Jesus looked at a very wealthy man and said, you can follow me when you get rid of your money. It never dawned on him to compromise his standards. His was a rigorous righteousness. And that character of Christ, the Spirit of God that rests on him, the impartial judgment and the rigorous righteousness are to be reflected in the lives of the people who own him as Lord. And then notice in verses 6, through nine, here is his calmness. His calmness. We might call this paragraph Paradise Regained. For now we move into description of the glories of the restored earth. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be in that day Harmony in all of creation. Creation which has been victimized by sin. I hate to give the enemy, as it were, more exposure than I need to, but I'm always amused as I read some of the so-called commentaries I possess. It's some of the solutions people come up with. The argument that I have read from some, and thank God there are a lot of folks that believe the Word, But the argument that I have read from some of the commentators is that it is totally unnatural for a lion to eat straw. Therefore, it'll never happen. And I stop and think to myself, you know, that tells you a lot about that commentator. That commentator probably has some idiotic view of theistic evolution and doesn't really believe in the creative power of God at all. And I wonder if he believes in the resurrection if he doesn't think God can reorder the metabolism of a lion to eat vegetation. There will be harmony in all of creation when that day comes. You know, creation itself, and we fail to realize this sometime, creation has been victimized by sin. For when God created the earth, there was no war between man and the elements. There was no hot or cold. There wasn't even any rain. There wasn't any need for it. And when man sinned and threw down his dominion and Satan picked it up and became the prince of the power of the air, creation, just as the human spirit has been, has been victimized by sin ever since. In Romans 8, Verses 19 through 22, and Romans is the key that unlocks all of Christian theology. Paul says this, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains like as childbirth together until now. Creation groans in anguish under the burden that sin has brought into the world. And I believe that when we reach the era of which Isaiah prophesies in this paragraph, that the restoration he talks of will be a literal restoration. It will be a glorious digression to the state that God created everything to be in the first place. And indeed the lion and the lamb and the bear and the cow shall dwell among us, and little children shall play freely among those feared serpents. Because we read in Genesis that there was enough familiarity that when God created the man, that the animals would come close enough that the man could observe them and give every one of them a name. It will be a literal restoration The curse will be lifted and creation itself will be liberated from the weight of sin. In verse 9, he talks about God's peace. And he says the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. God's peace will be everywhere. And he says, as the water covers the seas, in other words, it will be just as covering, just as efficient, just as effective as the water in the ocean beds is to cover the floor of the seas. His Spirit, like the water of the ocean, will leave nothing that is unsaturated. Here is His calmness, an era of calm and peace which will be like unto the days of creation. And then notice in verse 10, here is what I have called His charisma, His magnetism, His attractiveness that could not be resisted. It says that in that day, finally, after the struggle of ages and the victory has been realized, then all of the nations will resort or come to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal or an ensign for the peoples of the world, and his resting place will be glorious. In Romans 15, 12, (coughs) quoting Isaiah again, Paul says, There shall come from the the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. Now, to the Jew, there were two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. And so when he says he will rule over the Gentiles, he's talking about the whole earth. In him shall the Gentiles, or the nations of the world, hope. His kingdom, as we will discover when we come to Isaiah 66 in the last message in this series, will be a universal kingdom. The seat of his domain will also be the seat of his repose. He will be the first monarch in the history of humanity that could rest and rest easy in the throne of His power. For all conflict will be behind Him. His rule will be established. It will be absolute. And Isaiah says, Of His government there shall be no end. And the seed of His domain shall be the seed of His repose. He shall dwell in that kingdom in the blaze of uncreated glory. Man has created many glorious things. People travel around the earth in pilgr- pilgrimages to see the wonders of the hands of man. But eye has not seen, neither is ear heard, neither have entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them who love Him. For He shall dwell in a blaze of glory that has never known the human touch, a blaze of uncreated glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. For by Him were all things created, and through Him all things hold together. He is indeed charismatic, magnetic, and His attraction will finally be in the restored earth, irresistible to all of the peoples of the earth. These pronouncements about the Gentiles mean that all the nations of the world will look to Him. All that Christ said about Isaiah, all that Isaiah said about Christ was true. Everything that he said came to pass. Intricate details... Isaiah and the other prophets wrote his biography as effectively as the Gospels did. And so we must believe that everything they have said about the future, our future, will also hold true. Surely we can look forward to the day when the glorified Lord Jesus will be completely dominant. We can look forward to that day with great joy Assured that all of this too will come to pass with the assurance as Paul said that now we see as through a piece of smoked glass darkly and indistinctly but then we shall see Him face to face and the Spirit of God the sevenfold Spirit that rests on Him will dwell with us, May we pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, I stand perplexed often at my inability to express it and explain it. But oh, how I thank You that it is true. I thank You, Lord, that the ministry depends on the Word and not on the one who carries the Word. Lord, I pray that every one of us will be arrested both by the sevenfold Spirit of Christ and by a vision of certainty as we look toward the future. Lord, may the Spirit of Christ rest on us. And as we deal with people around us, May we deal with them, as Peter says, as aliens. May the world not consider us natives, but may it find in us the answer to all of its needs. Lord, I look forward with Isaiah and with John to the day when you bring it all to pass. And I say with John, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And during the days that intervene, before you descend and the church goes to be with you forever, I pray that you will use us in the way that you choose. Thank you for revealing so much to us in the Word. Thank you for the assurance of a full revelation one day. Now do with us as you please, I pray in Jesus' name.